Hello, and welcome to Techno Sapien, a future tense series of podcasts from Slate, New America, and Arizona State University. In this series, as the name suggests, we'll examine how technology, now and in the future, will impact us as a species and how we relate to each other. Each podcast is a debate about whether machines will solve our problems or make them worse. I'm Christine Rosen, a Future Tense Fellow and Senior Editor of The New Atlantis, and I'm the skeptical voice on technology. I'm joined by Marvin Amori, a Future Tense Fellow and First Amendment lawyer who prefers to think about flying around on spaceships, as I remember from some of our earlier conversations. Is that right, Marvin? I like technology. (laughs) Well, today we're going to discuss online education with Daphne Kohler. She's a professor of computer science at Stanford, and she's co-founder of Coursera, a company that's partnered with universities in the United States and internationally to offer a vast number of massive open online courses, or MOOCs. Hi, Daphne. Hello. If 2012 was considered the year of the MOOC, according to the New York Times at least, then 2014 has been something of a reality check for MOOCs. The promise of MOOCs, college-level classes from elite universities freely accessible to anyone who's online, is immensely appealing, especially in the United States where the cost of higher education is ballooning. But the first iterations of the MOOC have been beset with high dropout rates and a lack of student engagement. So what we want to ask you to discuss today, Daphne, is will MOOCs really open up higher education? So first of all, in I think the same way that uh, 2012, the hype was overblown, I think that in 2013, the predictions of doom are equally overblown. I think higher education is expanding in the sense that the audience that we're reaching is considerably larger than what has traditionally been viewed as the target audience of higher education. There is an enormous number of people out there that can benefit from access to higher education for whom the traditional avenues, such as going back to college for two years for residential experience to get a master's degree, are just not a feasible alternative because they're working adults. And so effectively, we're opening a brand new market. So where do you see education going generally? You know, if, if I were to hypothesize, and I'll give you a hypothesis and you can tell me if I'm wrong, Christine and I both went to fancy schools. No, uh, I didn't. I didn't you? go to a fancy school at all. Are you kidding me? No. Uh, uh, I had 500 people in my freshman class. I was known by my social security number. That's why. Okay. <laughs> I, I also went to a very large law school, but it was called Harvard. Uh, <laughs> you know, my, my first professor was uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Uh, another senator was one of my classmates. This explains and, a lot about you, Marvin. <laughs> Go on. Sorry. <laughs> all good things, I assume. So I had a few excellent professors. I had a very bad civil procedure professor. Uh, I hardly even went to class. Uh, it was so boring. I uh, learned nothing. And near the end of the class, when I had to you know, lock myself in a room and cram, I got some cassette tapes uh, and I listened to them by the other professor at Harvard, Arthur Miller. And I learned so much about civil procedure. It was amazing. And if he had a Coursera class on it, I would totally take it. You've just outed the bad civil procedure professor. You know, someone's going to Google that right now. <laughs> uh, it's well known that he's a bad, bad, bad teacher. But maybe other people liked him. But I see a world where the top professors, sort of like the top performers, are what everyone in America or around the world sort of will watch. Sort of, you know, the the Justin Bieber of justice theory is what everyone will watch and learn from. And He has some problems with justice, from what I recall, but go on. That's right. (laughs) Uh, The the sort of second tier and third tier schools or institutions will be scrambling or will be redundant 
or we'll sort of have to change their role. And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or bad thing, but I, but I feel like there might be a hollowing out uh, sort of the profession or of the, of the sort of mid-tier schools and the sort of creation of, the, of a star system like you have in Hollywood of like the big stars. And I don't know if you think that's where things could go or not, Daphne, but that's, that's what I think a lot of people are, are, are assuming will happen and trying to grapple with in advance. So I think it's important to distinguish mid-tier schools from mid-tier faculty. You just spoke about a faculty member at Harvard who you thought was not giving you the best quality education, whereas um, I know that there's a lot of really great teaching at schools that are not Harvard. And so I think what we're going to see is not that the high-tier schools get all of the great instructors and none of the other schools um, have anything to offer. I think there's great education to be found across a range of different schools. I personally think it's going to be amazing if each student, no matter where they end up going, um, and certainly the ones who are not in any educational system whatsoever, like all the students I spoke about earlier, have access to the best possible lecture in any given discipline. And by the way, what's best for you might not be best for somebody else, but so it gives you a choice. Um, and then I totally agree that we're likely to see a situation where Someone who isn't a really amazing lecturer in a given topic can still be a really great teacher in helping students work their way through the material and having class discussions and in teaching the higher level cognitive skills that surround the material, even if they're not the ones that are lecturing the basic content. Effectively, that's what textbooks did. And if you go back to the early days of textbooks, the same predictions of doom of how this is going to put um, instructors out of business were made back then. And, you know, there's still teachers, even though there's been textbooks around for quite a while now. Yeah, I read Christine's article on how textbooks were going to destroy the education <laughs> system. She's been against technology from the beginning. No, I just, don't want, I just don't want our professoriate to have to become contestants in a hot or not contest, you know, every time they step up in front of the classroom. We hear this word disruption a lot when we talk about MOOCs. You know, we're disrupting the, the classroom. We're flipping the classroom. It's all very helter-skelter. What about the disruption to educators themselves? Are we at risk if MOOCs become more widespread. What happens to the tenured professor at a small college in the Midwest who is now going to be replaced by the star Harvard ethics professor whose lecture is being purchased by its university and and shown to the students? What happens to this sort of ideal of the liberal education where you have, you know, a small classroom with professors who then interact face-to-face with their students? What does the MOOC do that disrupts that both for good and for ill? I don't think um, we've ever argued that this should be a substitute to the kind of intimate face-to-face education where people really bounce ideas off each other and there's a real dialogue. What I expect will happen to these colleges is that professors will rather move up the value chain. So instead of standing there and delivering content, they will use that material, much as one uses a textbook today, as the starting point for a discussion. And so instead of spending most of their time doing something that in some sense can be done as well or perhaps even better by a computer, which is a straight delivery of content, the practice with basic skills, that instead they will teach the kinds of skills that we currently can't teach as effectively using computer, which is critical thinking, formulating of ill-formed problems, debate, explanation, um, things that so many employers tell us we don't do a really good job of teaching to today's youth. 
Yes, ideally, but there have been some cases in colleges and universities where that's not how administrators decide to use these MOOCs. They use them as a substitute for the, you know, the professors whose wages they're paying to teach. So I do think that, yes, ideally, that's how we'd see these MOOCs used, but there is this possibility for them also to be a total replacement for that face-to-face interaction in the classroom. So I don't know of any colleges that have actually gone that route as of now. Maybe there's a few that I haven't heard of, but I don't think that's the expected route. Uh, most of the uh, colleges that I'm talking to are thinking about this as a supplement to the curriculum. Uh, we just finished a fairly large experiment at the University System of Maryland uh, that took a number of both our MOOCs as well as other educational content from other providers and exactly this uh, flipping the classroom with instructors who were volunteers who had stepped up to try this experiment. And Almost all of them reported that this was a great experience for them, that they would do this again, that they would recommend this to their colleagues because they felt like they could give their students a much better educational experience than they could just by straight teaching because effectively it allowed them to focus in on the parts of teaching that they enjoyed the most and that they felt they were providing the most value in. When I think of the idyllic Midwestern college University. I think there's probably a lot of bloat there. Right? I'm not sure Christine sees it. I don't think it's quite as, as great as we make it out to be. There's high tuition, people not getting jobs when they graduate from college. And there are a lot of folks who could probably be replaced, have taught the same class year after year after year. And if they just publish their notes online or their video online, you could probably reduce a lot of the bloat in the education system. Whatever is going on right now in the education system, it's not working perfectly. But one sort of question I have is... I was briefly a law professor. I was a law professor for three years in the Midwest, actually. Uh, So I've been inside the system. And I felt that I taught law school the way my professors had taught law school, and they taught it the way their professors had taught law school. We're still using the case method and case books designed by Christopher Columbus Langdell in 1889. And have we gotten any information from MOOCs, from online education, that actually change how we understand, can we teach better? Can we learn better? So can you explain that a little bit? Um, I think we will undoubtedly be able to teach better, um, not least of which because when you teach a course to 50,000 people, you get an immense amount of data on what's working and what's not. And when you teach 30 people and you only have maybe two points of visibility into how well they're doing what they're doing, which is the midterm and the final, it's really very difficult to optimize your teaching, to refine it, and to get better learning outcomes. Whereas in the MOOCs, we're able to gather immense amounts of data and say, this item is not working very well. This particular lecture is boring. People are dropping out in the middle. And so I think we have an opportunity to really um, refine the way we teach, both in the context of individual courses, but also more broadly, what makes for good pedagogy. Well, I agree with that statement. There is also then the risk of turning teaching into, you know, an episode of American Idol where, you know, suddenly everyone's falling off and bored, so let's instantly decide that we've got to change how we're teaching. In some ways, I think these data points are useful But, you know, one of the major data points we found from MOOCs is just how few people complete a course. So I'm I'm really curious about this credentialing issue, which has been part of the debate for a little while. Could could she answer that, actually? People make a big deal about how few people complete a class they enroll in. How do you think about that? I am so glad you asked that question because this is such a fundamental misconception that people have about what MOOCs are and how they operate. I ask great questions, Daphne. That's what I'm here for. 
And I'm so grateful that you asked this one. So you have to remember that the notion of enrolling in a MOOC is analogous in the traditional college setting to somebody browsing through the catalog and placing a little X next to a class that sounds interesting and they may or may not end up even attending. So of the people who sign up for a MOOC, about half never even show up for the first day because there's really no friction. You, You enroll and then... Two, two months later, the class begins, and you're, you're now doing something else. Um, of the ones that show up in the first day, there's a good fraction that watch the first lecture, realize that this is not what they were looking for, and they drop out. This is analogous to the shopping period that most colleges have, where it's not really until the second or third week of classes that you're accounted as being enrolled in the class. Now, if you look at the people who come in to a class and say, I'm, you know, after two or three weeks of elapsed are, and they know what they're getting into and you ask them, are you committed to completing the course? Completion rates are now approximately in the 60 to 70 percent. If you ask them to put a little bit of skin in the game, that is, they furthermore enroll in, in our verified certificates program and pay $50, not a lot of money, just $50, um, completion rates get close to 90 percent. So I think it's the question of what do you view as the population of people who really, quote, unquote, enrolled in the class. And it's not the people who click the button saying, I'm, I'm interested maybe in potentially coming and taking this class in two months. That makes sense, actually. But then that does lead us to this question of credentialing. So if someone completes the MOOC and pays the $50 mm-hmm. and gets the credit... How are you dealing with this issue of who accepts the credit, both from the perspective of higher education, but more importantly, employers? I mean, if you've taken a MOOC course and you hand someone your transcript, how are you working with employers to get them to recognize that this is actually a useful credit for a student to have? So first of all, uh, it's important to recognize that this is not a credit-bearing course, and most institutions are not accepting this for traditional college credit, but that's just fine since the vast majority of our population is not actually college bound. They either have a degree and don't intend to go back and get another one, or in some cases, they never got a degree and mostly this is outside of the United States because they just didn't have access to getting a college degree and are treating this as some form of entry point into a, into a better career. So in terms of how employers are treating this, I think that this is something whose credence is growing in the marketplace. People are recognizing that um, these are rigorous courses from some of the best universities and that if somebody completes one of these courses or more recently one of our multi-course specializations with a capstone at project at the end that actually corresponds to like an authentic assessment of learning, this is a real learning experience. And uh, we see a lot of acceptance growing in the marketplace among employers for the value of this credential. And when I think of my education system, it felt, you know, I think I read somewhere that it sort of comes out of the factory systems sort or of preparing people to work in factories or whatever. It's, you know, there's people lined up in seats and one person you know, sort of teaching us the same thing and we're filling out forms and we're memorizing. I don't feel as though creativity was really emphasized in my education. And I'm not sure if other people feel the same way. I see some nods from Christine. But have we learned anything about teaching creativity? It seems to be sort of the, in vogue now as we move to a sort of knowledge-based economy. Can we teach creativity more easily and more effectively based on what we've learned from, from MOOCs and what Coursera is doing? I think that one of the things that we've actually demonstrated is that one can teach creativity 
or even um, allow creativity to bloom, even in the context of a MOOC. So I mentioned briefly earlier the notion that we have specialization with a capstone project at the end. That capstone project is a full month-long creative exercise that builds on the top on the on the ideas that were taught in the specialization, and the students actually create something with it that is then evaluated by, in many cases, the peers in the class. Sometimes with some uh, participation from the instructor. We've seen amazing projects emerge from MOOCs that in many cases were even life-transforming, not just for the person doing the project, but for people in their environment. And so I think that one shouldn't assume that one can't enable creativity at a large scale in the context of these courses. I do want to say, though, that I think Christine and I agree on one thing that neither of us believe you that you're not going to destroy mid-tier and lower-tier schools. (laughs) That we believe uh, firmly that even though you have to go out and partner with the, I think you have 108 partner institutions that, you know, you you can't quite say it, but I I don't think either of us believe you that you're not going to eventually just radically change the way education is done in America. And I think that's a great thing. I can't wait to get rid of a lot of the excess fat in the education system. (laughs) And I think that Christine thinks it's not a great thing. And you can deny it all you want, but neither of us believe you. Just just, just don't use the word gamification. I will break out in hives, I promise you. Well, thank you very much, Daphne, for joining us. We've been speaking to Daphne Kohler, who is one of the co-founders of Coursera. Thanks, Daphne. Thank you very much, Christine. Thank you, Marvin. Thank you, Daphne. I'd like to thank Ariel Bogle, Elizabeth Weingarten, and Fuzz Hogan for producing this series. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. With Marvin Amori, I'm Christine Rosen. Thanks for listening.